And welcome to episode 107 of Killer Hangover. I'm Bettina. And I am Beth. We're going to stay in the Midwest and cover Kansas. Yep. I've got the true crime. And you, my dear, have the paranormal and the drink. So what are you drinking? So we are recording virtually and I'm sitting here with an empty glass. So I guess you should rephrase that. What did you drink? (laughs) Okay, Beth has the paranormal and the drink. What did you drink? Well, I made this cocktail after I put the kids to bed. I was ready to go record. And then one of them trickled downstairs and then the other trickled downstairs. And (laughs) this one's bothering this one. And this one kicked that one. And it's, it's, you know, so that drink disappeared really quickly. Really fast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it must have been pretty good. What was it? Okay, doing Kansas. It's pretty easy for us to get our hands on a Kansas beer or a Kansas wine. But I was like, hmm, what is the Kansas cocktail? There's so many. No, you Google Kansas cocktail. And the first six that came up was the Kansas City ice water. Now, I've lived in Kansas City for years and I have never (laughs) Never heard of this cocktail before. (laughs) And... I know, and those in Kansas City know, there's a difference between the Missouri side and the Kansas side. I don't know if the Kansas City ice water is a Kansas side drink or a Missouri side drink. So I hope I don't, I hope I don't offend any Kansas Cityans with this cocktail, but it came up everywhere. All right. It is very refreshing. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Obviously. It is one ounce gin, one ounce of vodka, a half ounce of lime juice. And I really suggest all of the recipes where I found this, they really did suggest using a fresh lime yeah. instead of like lime a difference. juice. Mm-hmm. And then a half ounce of triple sec. Some recipes called for it, some didn't. I had it on hand, so I used it. And then three ounces of a lemon lime flavored carbonated beverage. I used Sprite. <laughs> So you combine the gin, vodka, lime juice, and triple sec in a shaker with ice. Shake, strain into a chilled pint glass with ice, pour in the lemon-lime soda, and serve. Voila. And then as your children upset you, the drink will disappear. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. All right. Well, I can't say sit back and enjoy your drink, but sit back and listen, I guess. I should have made myself a second, but I don't know if I would have gotten through the paranormal portion if I had two of these. <laughs> uh, so it hits you, huh? Well, I don't drink hard liquor that often, and we've got gin and vodka in this one. And triple soda. But it was really refreshing. Like, if you like a lemon-lime drink, it's it was really tasty. And easy to make, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Very much so. All right, kiddo. We were asked to cover this particular crime by one of our very faithful listeners. Shout out to you, Mitzi. She actually knew the victim. Both attended the same school, but Mitzi was 18 and Liz was 13. So there wasn't much interaction there. But both Liz's family and Mitzi's family attended the same church. They went to St. Anne's Parish and the families lived close together. So she, she knew little Liz. So this was a big case at the time, and that's in Prairie Village, Kansas. They didn't have much crime 
and population of like 26,000. So it really shook the community. Mitzi put me in contact with one of the witnesses in the case. Wow. Deborah Newald, who I was lucky enough to interview, and you'll hear her story in a few minutes. This is not a well-known case by any means. It's not one of the big ones, you know, that, that people cover. But after I share it with you, I think you'll, well, you'll dislike the murderer as much as I do. I mean, we cover bad people, but this guy is a creep. He's just so creepy. Yuck. On Sunday, July 7th, 1974, Lizbeth, and that's not Elizabeth, but Lizbeth, we're going to call her Liz. That's what she went by. Wilson, she was 13, and her brother John, 11, were at the Prairie Village City Swimming Pool, which happens to be in close proximity to the high school. This is important. John, like all Henri little brothers, was joking around and jumped off the diving board doing a cannonball. He ended up almost jumping on his sister. (laughs) And as siblings do, she told him she was going to go tell their parents. So both of them got out of the pool and headed home. John ran ahead of Liz wanting to get to the house first, you know, explain his situation first before she did. But then he had an even better idea because remember I said he was Henri. He was going to hide behind a corner of the high school where Liz had to pass and he was going to jump out and scare her. My gosh, this reminds me of my boys just five minutes ago. Mom, mom, his foot touched me. No, his foot touched me. All right. So he takes one last glance in Liz's direction, sees her and ducks out of sight real fast. Then he stands there and waits. Well, dang, Liz should have showed up within a minute or two. He takes another look, but doesn't see her. He waited a little longer, then ran home. The rule in the Wilson's house, as it was in many at the time, you had to be in the yard when the street lights came on. Now, we never could use that rule when you were growing up because we didn't have street lights. So. <laughs> well, growing up, I, dad had his significant whistle. Once you heard dad do his the dog personalized whistle, yeah. whistle <laughs> we knew it was time to head home. <laughs> well, unfortunately, the lights came on, but still Liz was not home. At 10 p.m., the Wilsons called the police, who responded immediately. They conducted a door-to-door search that lasted well into the early morning hours. Still, no Liz. The family, along with about 250 of St. Anne's members, searched for Liz all through the next day. The FBI was called in. At one time, between FBI and police, there were about 100 agents working on locating Liz. Sex offenders and deviants in the area were interviewed, but this didn't pan out. And Prairie Village is, it's a smaller area, but it is close to downtown Kansas City. Yeah, it's, it's like a suburb, I guess you call it a suburb of Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is. So you do have like the city there, but man, that's a lot of people working this case. That's great. Right. And think it was in 74. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the police hopped on this immediately. It wasn't, oh, wait, 24 hours or whatever. You know what I'm saying? They jumped on it. There was, however, one man that was very suspicious. 27-year-old John Horton, one of the custodians at the high school. 
Why did they focus on Horton? 24 hours after Liz disappeared, police interviewed two teen tennis players, Beth and Mary, who were on the court at the time Liz went missing. Beth told police that when she and her friend ended their tennis game, Horton walked up to her saying that he needed help. He had just watered the trees in the schoolyard, and he needed help turning the water off. The spigot was too high for him to reach. Could she just stand on his shoulders and turn it off? Hmm? Okay, there's all kinds of things wrong here. Why is the water spigot that high off the ground? And how did you turn it on to begin with? Had Horton never heard of a ladder... Why is he asking a kid to help him, etc., etc., etc.? Beth immediately felt this request was off. Good for her. And made absolutely no sense. So she told Horton, no. Like we always say, go with your gut. It turns out the spigot was six inches off of the ground. Police also interviewed some cheerleaders. There were eight from Shawnee Mission East High School who had been practicing on the school lawn. Practice was over at the time of Liz's disappearance. But when questioned, Deborah, the witness that I told you about before? Yes. She was part of these cheerleaders, okay? Okay. So Deborah told police that as the cheerleaders were practicing that Sunday afternoon, a man approached them. He was wearing a blue utility suit, had longish hair that was like strawberry blonde, Deborah immediately got a bad feeling about this man. Mm. Strangely enough, he asked the girls if any of them needed to get into the school. That was a weird question because the school was locked for the summer and why would they want to get into the school? Deborah told me she didn't even trust that the guy was a janitor at the time because she had never really seen him. But that was because he worked the later hours. But she still, she was so untrusting of this guy, like she didn't believe anything he was saying. She went on to say that, get this, at the time he approached the girls, he wasn't acting as a janitor, but rather as a predator. Interesting. So maybe that's why, you know, him saying that he was a janitor at the school, she didn't trust that because he was just not coming. His vibes were totally off. Hmm, okay. The girls responded, no, they didn't need to go in the school, and continued with their practice as the man walked away. Deborah stationed herself in the cheerleading circle that so that she could face the back of the school. She wanted to keep an eye on the guy. Smart girl. Yep, definitely. Her gut told her that something with him was totally off. After practice, she told the other cheerleaders, okay, nobody stays here alone. If somebody has to stay here, we're all staying here. Wow. Yeah. Stick with the buddy. Yep. What was interesting is that the police questioned all eight cheerleaders, but only two, Deborah and her friend Carrie, remembered even talking to the man who said he was a janitor. Oh, the other girls didn't remember? They didn't even remember it. It didn't even like... It didn't register with them. It didn't register. No. So isn't that Mm. interesting, though? And I mean, you know... Every witness tells a different, a slightly different story. Everybody sees things in a little bit different way. But with these other six, they didn't even remember that this guy had walked up there. Which is so interesting because Deborah took so much of a predator 
aspect away from her conversation with him. Oh, I mean, they didn't even register anything. I mean, even remember even seeing the man. Right. That's really fascinating. And to this day, I mean, when I was interviewing her, she said, I can see him distinctly right now. Mm. Everything about him made an imprint in her mind. Oh, it's fascinating. Scary, but I know she's got a good gut. (laughs) Now, the girls were all like 16 or 17 year olds doing their cheerleading thing. But it's kind of scary, like you said, how oblivious the other girls were to what was going Mm -hmm. on around them. I questioned out loud during the interview that I wondered what ruse the man, John Horton, used on innocent, naive Liz. We'll never know. But Mm -hmm. as Deborah pointed out, the guy had been trying pretty much all afternoon to get a young girl into the school. His sick efforts paid off at 7.20 p.m. when Liz fell for his lure. Horton was questioned. He stated that he never saw Liz walking by, didn't know who she even was. He told the investigators that he took his dinner break at 8 p.m., about 20 minutes after Liz was last seen, and got off of break at uh, 11. When asked why the break was so long, Horton said that his car broke down in the parking lot of a local grocery store and he had to fix it. When later questioned, the clerk at the grocery store stated that no car was in the parking lot during any of the time Horton was on break. Now, I got the inside scoop on that one because I was wondering when I, you know, read like the newspaper clipping, I wondered how did the clerk know that? I mean, did the clerk, why was the clerk looking at the parking lot? Yeah. (laughs) I got the answer from Deborah. The young clerk noticed that there was no car in the lot because he had just purchased a car that he had driven to work and every few minutes he would glance out the window to make sure his car was all right. <laughs> but so he knew with absolute certainty there was nobody absolute in the parking posit- lot. Yeah, exactly. Well, okay, here's a here's a silly question, but No. So is so he's the custodian for the school, but it is summertime. So was he just gardening? But why is he gardening that late at night? Like are those normal hours for a custodian during the summer? Well, it's a it's a high school. So there's more than one custodian. So he came on shift at I don't know when he came on shift, but he worked. He he had Sure, the, I know he, there's a night shift and stuff, but like during the summer? Shift. Yeah, that that's when they like polish the floors and if there's something But is that, that even needs- needed during the summer when people aren't in there? It's summertime. There's no classes or is there? You don't know. I mean, a lot of places have like summer camps and stuff. So maybe there's people in there during the day, teachers. It just sounded very odd that the night custodian would be working during the summer and that late at night and when it's not like there's a ton of students during the day that get it dirty and what have you. Right. Didn't know if that was a normal hours or not. He had been there all afternoon. So. So that's like he meant. Yeah, that's right. Because you mentioned that he had been there in the afternoon trying to lure all these girls. And now he's there till 11. I didn't know if those were normal hours because I don't know what normal hours are. are But I think his were extended. (laughs) But like he took his quote lunch break at eight o'clock. But usually yeah. a lunch break is an hour. <laughs> he didn't come yeah. back till 11 saying that his car, you know, he's working on his car, whatever. Those hours are just really odd. Yeah. Police questioned the custodian who was on the shift following Horton's. Oh, sorry. So 
Horton probably had the, they might have had like three different custodians, the morning, afternoon, and night. Okay, but he took his break at eight o'clock. And then <laughs> no, it doesn't, ma- doesn't so make did sense. Did he have two <laughs> shifts that day? <laughs> During the summertime. <laughs> so they work just- their custodians hard, let me tell you. <laughs> Sorry, I was just trying to, I was trying to make like a timeline in my head, but I was like, dang, these are some long hours (laughs) and it's summertime. The school's not even like super active. I'm going to ask a question that may sound stupid, but man. (laughs) So police questioned the custodian who was on the shift following Horton's. The man stated that when Horton came, got back to the school after his quote break, he wasn't wearing a shirt. And he had scratches on his arms and his back. Oh, my gosh. Investigators now had enough to get a warrant for Horton's car. In the trunk, they found a butcher knife, a canvas bag, rags, sulfuric acid, and three bottles of chloroform. Mm. Pretty much an abduction kit. When asked about the items, Horton explained that the butcher knife was a gift for his wife. Okay. The sulfuric acid was for an experiment he was doing. And the chloroform? Oh, boy. Well, that was to get high. Yeah, right. But still, even with that find, there wasn't enough evidence to arrest him. It was all circumstantial. Meanwhile, the poor Wilson family is going through hell. So there, there's a podcast called Cold Files, A Sister Lost. And John stated in that podcast, quote, I knew in my heart she would come back. Oh. Liz did, in a way, come back. But in the way that was the family's worst nightmare. Six months to the day. So January 7th. A surveyor was scouting out a big open field about nine miles from the high school when he saw a skull. He immediately called the police, the police, FBI agents, and investigators walked that field arm in arm so as not to miss any bones. Through dental records, it was confirmed that the skull belonged to Lizbeth Wilson. John stated on the podcast, quote, it was my fault. How could this happen to my family? Unquote. And is John her brother? John's a I'm little, so sorry. the 11-year-old brother. That was messing around, you know, playing around that That's day. right. Okay. And John carried this in his heart for many years, taking the blame for Liz's death. No. Investigators now have a body. So they take the case to the DA. Who turns them down? There's not enough mm-hmm. physical evidence to prosecute Horton. The Liz Wilson case turns cold. That is until 2001, 27 years later. I'm telling you, DNA and the masterful science of it all is just... Well, but this was a rookie detective, Kyle Ships, who stumbled on the case and took a good hard look at it. So no DNA has even come in yet. He was just kind of looking through cold cases and he pulled that one out and started looking at it and going, how is this not solved? Hmm. To begin with, he looked to see whether Horton had any criminal records. Dun-da-da! 
Lo and behold, in 1993, Horton was arrested for peeping into teen girls' windows at night. Hold on. Was he a custodian before or after this? 1993. He was a custodian in 1974. Okay. Okay. Now Ships knows that Horton is into young teen girls. Mm. A picture of this guy is forming. Agent Brad Quartz from the KBI, Kansas Bureau of Investigation, was called in to help ships. It simply did not make sense that anyone would have any of the items in the trunk of their car, especially three bottles of chloroform. Ships and Quartz interviewed Beth, the tennis player, Deborah, the cheerleader, and again, now remember, this is almost 30 years later, both women clearly remembered that fateful day and Beth had some new information to add. She said that when Horton was talking to her, she saw John Wilson run past. Oh, so she actually saw him run past. So that left her and Horton in the middle of Liz and John because Liz was behind John. Yeah. Liz would have passed after Beth left. Okay, so Beth left Horton And Liz would have walked, I mean, like, shortly after Beth left, Liz would have walked past that same spot. Sure. So Horton was there. Ships and Quartz were convinced Horton was their man. They questioned him in the parking lot of the factory he now worked at. When asked about Liz, he dropped his head and remained silent. They then took him in to be interviewed. Quote, the issue is not whether you did it said Ships to Horton. The issue is why and how you did it, unquote. Horton responded that he did not remember seeing Liz and, quote, this is crazy. No, responded Ships, this is reality. <laughs> I like that. Unfortunately, all this evidence and all the witnesses were still circumstantial. Yeah, there's nothing tying him Mm -mm. at all. There's no hard evidence. The investigators needed a smoking gun. They got just that on August 8th, 2003, in the form of Joy Krieger. Joy had a secret, one that she had promised herself she would never talk about. But now it was time to let it go. Joy told police that she lived across the street from Horton and his wife. About two months before Liz disappeared, Horton asked her whether she wanted to get high with him. The 14-year-old Joy agreed, thinking that they were going to smoke some pot. Horton took her to a golf course one night, and after they settled on the green, he handed her a rag with chloroform on it. It smelled so bad that Joy pushed it away, but Horton pressed the rag to her nose and mouth. Joy passed out. She awoke to find her pants down and Horton fondling her. Then she passed out again. When she woke the second time, Horton was pulling her pants up. Again, she passed out and after a while woke the third time. She was alone on the green and she proceeded to violently get sick. She vowed to herself then and there that she would tell no one. This was her secret. Oh my gosh. On October 15th, 2003, Horton was charged with the murder of Lizbeth Wilson. His trial was in September 2004. Deborah, who lived in Chicago at the time, was called in as a witness. The key to the prosecution was Joy Krieger. 
The similarities between her and Liz were striking. This was Horton's M.O. Lure a young teen girl, then use chloroform to incapacitate her. And when she's unconscious, he had his way sexually with her. Oh, that's so scary because he worked at a high school. Uh And at that time, women didn't, there is no Me Too movement. Women didn't come forward. I just, there had to have been more. That is so scary and so sad to think of. I know. And, and Joy, I mean, I think she was like 14 years. Yeah, she's 14 years old. Yeah. And she's like, I'm going to get blamed for this because yeah, exactly. I agreed to go get high. I know. That was just that time. And she was just right. a stinking kid. She and was, he was in kid. his 20s. Right. Oh, that's so sad. So between Joy's statement on the witness stand, as well as the tennis players, cheerleaders, employees of Shawnee Mission East High School, where Horton was a janitor, and various law enforcement officers and FBI agents, the jury, within one and a half hours, found John Horton guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison. Unfortunately, it's not the end. In 2007, Joyce Yeager argued for the case that Horton's conviction for first-degree murder, according to Horton's defense, the state failed to sufficiently tie the sexual abuse suffered by Joy Crager and the disappearance of Liz Wilson. Can you, re- can you repeat that? That was a lot of names. Sorry. Well, it's hard to understand, but the defense is saying, basically, that the state failed to sufficiently tie the sexual abuse suffered by Joy Krieger, okay, the girl Mm -hmm. that he brought to the golf course, and the disappearance of Liz Wilson. Okay. Yes, the girls were about the same age, but Joy had willingly accompanied Horton to the golf course and was sexually assaulted by Horton at the course. But there was not any evidence that Liz inhaled chloroform, nor is there evidence that she was sexually molested. Yes, there is proof that Liz is dead, but no evidence as to how she died. There is no evidence that supports the theory that Horton led Liz into the school, that he killed her, and after she was dead, there is no evidence that he dumped her body in the field. So the defense is fighting this. And this was in 2007? Uh Uh-huh. The Kansas Supreme Court heard the motion and the verdict stating that the testimony of Joey Krieger should never have been allowed. And without her testimony, they had no case. And I can kind of see that because it's a character, like it's showing he's a bad guy, sure. But again, Mm -hmm. it really doesn't have any reference, unfortunately, to Liz. Yeah, I know. But it's, I mean, logically, it makes me sick to my stomach because you have so many witnesses and so many. Yeah. But they didn't witness him taking her. They didn't witness him and her even together at any time. Right. That's the crack in the whole case. Yeah, there is just no proof. There is a second trial in 2008. All the witnesses were called back. (laughs) Deborah said it was a little surreal back in the quote, green room. I didn't know they called it the green room. We do that in theater when we're waiting backstage to get on stage. We have a green room. But the green room, I guess, in the trial is where all the witnesses are held before they come up to testify. And this is crazy to me because this is 30 plus years later. Mm -hmm. I know, right? 
I mean, so how do you even, I don't mean offense by this, but like, how do you even know that like these witnesses are remembering correctly because the story has been told so many times or, you know what I mean? Like, no, how I, do they know I, that these are accurate memories? I know. I, I know exactly what you mean. But, you know, if they were all like Deborah, like she remembers everything, everything distinctly. Oh, well, I guess it was a moment in time that just... Now that all of them were like her, I don't know. But I know for sure she was a great witness. I'm sure it's a day she'll never forget. Yep. So everybody that was at the first trial was back for the second trial in the green room. Four years older and now with two Kansas inmates dressed in orange jumpsuits. These two orange-clad inmates were the smoking gun for this prosecution this time around. Both testified that Horton had told them that he had killed Liz, but it was an accident. He had given her too much chloroform. With the inmates testifying, it also allowed Joy Crager's story to come to play. This time, it took the jury longer, but after nine hours covering two days, the jury came back with a guilty verdict. According to one of Liz's family members, Horton looked stunned when he heard the verdict. Oh my gosh. They went on to say that he kind of had a smirk on his face the whole time because basically he'd gotten away with it for 27 years and then he got away with it again. Obi has to say hi. Then he got away (laughs) with it again for you know when he got out of jail so now he's thinking yeah okay we'll go through this trial and whatever but he was found guilty smirk was wiped off his face good he was actually stunned (laughs) that's crazy to me horton was sentenced to life in prison which is 15 years yep as i understand it Back in 1974, when the crime was committed, life in prison was 15 years. How how does that even make sense? And then the accused would be eligible for parole because he committed the crime in 1974 when life meant 15 years and then they could be up for parole. That Okay, I thought you meant life meant 15 years and then they're just let out. So they're just up for parole. Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure why he didn't get life without parole since yeah, the trial was in 2008. Right. It was like a total retrial. So I know that he committed the crime in 74, but I don't think that uh, personally, if they asked me, I would say that has no bearing on the trial in 2008. He should get slam dunk. They didn't ask me. So he's been up for parole since then. What did they say? Horton did appeal for parole in 2018. He only had to serve 10 years because the years he spent in prison after the first trial was taken off of the 15 years. Mm -hmm. In October 2018, his parole was denied. Horton is eligible for parole again in January 2023. He'll be 76 years old. Let's see what happens. Yeah, so he'll be out for parole then. Is it every five years? I think, yeah, I think so. Is that how it yeah, works? I think so. But he's 76, you know. Oh, ugh. You know, and because they had what he did to Joy, as well as the case in general, that he was obviously trying to lure other girls. Like You can obviously see he's a predator. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. It's not like a one time thing. Like he was obviously a predator. And you know what really scares me though? There was a 27 year lapse there. How many girls did he mess with? That's what I'm saying. We don't know. We'll never know. We'll never know. We won't. Especially like we said before, because of the time period of it all. Yeah. And the way that women being victimized was looked at or, you know, claiming victim was looked at. Plus a young girl. Yeah. We're talking about 14 year olds. I mean, oh, that's so, that's so angering. If I had a second cocktail, it'd be gone again. (laughs) So what they think happened that day, July 7th, 1974, Horton lured Liz into the school. He led her into the TV room where he proceeded to hold a rag doused in chloroform over her face. Initially, it wasn't enough to keep Liz unconscious, and when she woke, she tried to fight Horton off, thus the scratches. Because of his experience with Joy, Horton thought he needed more chloroform to keep Liz unconscious, so he soaked the rag. This, however, was too much now, and it killed Liz. He dumped her body in the field, fully intending to come back the next day with a shovel and bury her, but police had already started questioning and he didn't want to inadvertently lead them to the field. So he left the body as it was. John Horton said in the podcast, quote, I wonder how it would have been to have had Liz with us all these years, but I know I'll see her again in heaven. I also hope that in Joy's case, because she too is an abuse victim here, that she was helped by opening up and telling her story and that it enabled her to find some peace. Now, I'm going to close by talking about some things that Deborah shared with me. So I wanted to know what it was like to be a witness twice, especially in a murder trial. And how was it that after 27 years and then 30 years, she was able to remember what happened? Deborah responded that even as a little girl, she was always very aware of her surroundings. She was very in tuned into what was going on, perhaps because of those intense responses. The memory of that afternoon was burned into her head because even as she spoke to me, she said she could see the scene and how it played out perfectly as if it happened yesterday. Along with being very perceptive of her surroundings, she learned early on to be aware of her gut instincts and more importantly, to follow them. She kept saying that. I have learned from experience to follow my gut. Love that. And that is something we have often said in this podcast. Listen to your gut. Always. As far as being a witness, until that first trial, she had never been on a witness stand. So, of course, she was a little nervous. She called her father, who happened to be a trial lawyer, and asked what she thought was maybe a stupid question. But I don't think it was. She asked what she should wear. (laughs) Sure. I mean, you know, it's not a dumb question. Well, I mean, again, you're a woman on the stand. You want to be taken seriously. Exactly. He said, don't wear too much jewelry. Don't wear too much makeup. And answer questions concisely. Do not elaborate. Hmm. Deborah said that the day before the trial, she ran along the street and by the house where Liz had lived, but she did not run by the high school. So much at the school had changed that she wanted to keep how the school looked in 1974 fresh in her head. 
Interesting. Yeah, I know. This woman is just, I mean, she's just so perceptive and smart. (laughs) (laughs) I wondered how it was answering questions by the defense. You know, you always like, you're prepared by whatever trial lawyer. And then all of a sudden the defense comes up and starts shooting questions at you. I bet that's incredibly intimidating. And then you have a jury and you, I mean, that had to be very scary. Yeah. She said that she was shown a picture of the school so she could point out where everything she witnessed took place. But the photo was an aerial view, which was very disorienting. She pointed out that it's not usually our view. You know, we're, no. we view things head on. We don't look down on anything. So it was very confusing. Mm-hmm. Horton's lawyer kept saying during questioning, quote, well, this is what you thought. Or, quote, so this is what you thought? She just kept pressing Deborah to admit that her testimony was all about her emotions more so than fact. Because Deborah did admit that she had a gut feeling about Horton and that she did not trust him. But in response to all the pushing from the defense, Deborah responded, quote, no, it's what I observed. Good girl. I love that. Oh, my gosh. I'm telling you, she... She did not get pushed no. into a corner. Like, no. She is her. a smart woman. I mean, she really is just talking to her. She's just such a very pleasant... It was a great interview, and she's just so intelligent. One thing that really hit me during the interview with Deborah was that she admitted to me that she refused to look Horton in the eye. Quote, the eyes are the windows to the soul. And I didn't want to look into his evil, dark soul, unquote. Oof. Oh. Yeah, I guess I've never really thought about what it would be to be a witness in that situation. To take the stand or to be in a room with a potential killer or any of that. Like, she didn't ask to be there. She didn't ask, no. She didn't. You know what I mean? To she be in just that happened situation, to remember but... things from that day, you know? And then all of a sudden yeah. you're called up 27 years later and 30 years later. That's crazy. To testify. And then there's that defense lawyer that's like in your face saying, ah, it's all your emotions. This is what you felt, right? <laughs> yeah, like they're just doing their job too. I mean, they're called to defend this person. Right. But you're just like, stop intimidating me. Like, I'm scared. Oh, stop. Stop it. I, I don't think I'd make a very good witness. I'd probably start crying. Crying, yeah. I no, would don't stop being, stop being mean to me. You're being really mean to me. Okay, we both suck. We cannot witness any crimes, okay? We'll just talk about them. We cannot witness anything. We just cannot witness anything. <laughs> Those lawyers would tear us apart. <laughs> well, I I thought it was interesting. I'm so grateful to her for giving me that time. You're such a busy person. Very much so. Thank you. I, I really appreciated being able to speak to her. It was a great insight. It's something that we haven't had before. A witness. Yes, and thank you to Mitzi for the recommendation. Right, right. And little Liz, rest in peace. Oh, what do you have? Okay, Mom. Okay, Beth. Okay, so I have a couple stories for you all. And I apologize 
because when I researched and wrote up this episode, I was working on like maybe four hours of sleep and over two nights. (laughs) (laughs) I am on the struggle bus. If it's not allergies, it's a baby or toddlers. So I'm sorry. But I have a couple legends for you all from Kansas. Legends, yes. The first one is the one that many from the surrounding area will have heard of. The legend of one of the seven gates of hell, Stoll Cemetery. (laughs) I first heard about the story when I was probably 13 years old. Mm -hmm. And my older stepbrother was, you know, how older brothers are. You know, there's a church that sits in the cemetery out in the middle of nowhere in Kansas. And it's a really old church. It doesn't have a roof anymore. But when it rains, it never rains inside the church. (laughs) This cemetery is so haunted, Beth, that when the Pope came to the United States, he changed his flight path (laughs) to not fly anywhere near this cemetery. I remember that one. And me, well, being gullible me, I've always just kind of believed these stories. (laughs) Anthony, my older brother, wasn't the first to share this scary tale with me. As I grew up, I heard more and more about this haunted Kansas cemetery in Stoll, Kansas. So here I am now, 33 years old, (laughs) and still a huge believer in the paranormal, but I'm not so sure a church with no roof stayed dry. So, yes, I had to do this research for the podcast, but I'm also doing it for 13-year-old Beth. (laughs) So, actually, most of the hauntings of this cemetery are not documented. Most are just shared, like my older stepbrother Anthony did, by word of mouth, Mm -hmm. meaning it's a legend. But the stories that are shared are rather spooky, so I'm going to share them with you. (laughs) Take them as you will. Stoll Cemetery is, quote, haunted by legends of diabolical supernatural happenings, unquote. It is said that the devil himself held court in the old church that used to sit on the cemetery's grounds. It has been named one of the seven gates to hell. The cemetery has many stories of ghosts, supernatural occurrences, witchcraft, and more. These tales of haunts have apparently been told for hundreds of years. Really? But finally made it to print in 1974 when some KU students wrote an article about it in the student newspaper. Did you mean to do 74? No, I didn't. I didn't know what story you were covering. That's right. That's weird. (laughs) So (laughs) same time as your story is when my story basically started. So some KU students wrote an article about Stull Cemetery in their student newspaper. The quote before how the cemetery is, quote, haunted by legends of diabolical supernatural happenings is from their article. Okay. The students claimed that they had heard the tales of the cemetery from their parents and grandparents over the years. And some even said that they experienced things firsthand. One had been grabbed by an unseen force. Another suffered memory loss after their visit. (laughs) Was some alcohol involved? (laughs) 
So apparently the devil comes to earth and appears in person there at Stoll Cemetery <laughs> twice every single year. Once <gasps> on Halloween, and once for the spring equinox, which is March 20th. Okay. So soon after the article came out, March 20th comes around, and more than 150 people waited in the cemetery for the devil's arrival. (laughs) According to an article on AmericanHauntingsSync.com, quote, the only spirits that showed up that night came in bottles and cans, Even though the devil, as well as spirits of those that died from violent deaths, didn't appear as the legend said, the stories and the visits from people continued. To this day, haunting tales are shared. Here are their stories. Dun dun. (laughs) Sorry. Two men were visiting Stoll Cemetery when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a strong wind took hold of them. (laughs) Sorry, we're in Kansas. I know. Keep in mind, we are in the fields of Kansas. Has anyone seen the Wizard of Oz? (laughs) Anyway, it's windy. They get scared and run out of the cemetery towards where they parked their car. But their car wasn't there. (gasps) It was now across the highway, facing in the opposite direction than how they had parked. (laughs) The name Stoll is apparently a cover-up. Oh, I hadn't heard this one. (laughs) Since the 1850s, the devil has been making visits to the cemetery, and he named the small town Skull. (laughs) Because of all the witchcraft and evil doings there in the small village, the people changed the name to Stull to hide their scary practices. Listeners, if you could see her face as she's saying, (laughs) that's why I'm cracking. (laughs) In truth, the town was named in 1899 after their first postmaster, Sylvester Stull. Before that, it was Deer Creek Community. (laughs) There's nothing to do with skulls at all. Okay, so like I've said many a times now, the devil comes to the cemetery. He goes to the abandoned church, the one that had no roof. And now this church has been torn down. And actually, sorry, it was mysteriously taken down in 2002. Literally, the owner of the property, as well as locals, just woke up on March 29th and it was gone. <laughs> wow. So that is kind of weird. But I'll cover more on the creepy old church in a bit. But as I was saying, the devil said to come to the church Halloween and spring equinox. He would gather the souls of those that died violent deaths and dance around the earth at the witching hour. Mm. This story, the story about the dancing souls, was printed in the Kansas City Times in 1980. The story of Stoll, Kansas spread like wildfire. Okay, some more legends. There was an old tree in the cemetery. One of those old gnarly trees, you know, with the low, creepy limbs. (laughs) Yes. The story went that this tree was used as a gallows for witches back in the day. And the tree's roots, well, the tree itself grew so much it broke a tombstone in half over time. Yeah. A tombstone that read the name Wittich. 
W-I-T-T-I-C-H. Now, this is this is for real. The tree did break. The tomb, yes, the yes. tree or the roots did break a tombstone, and it ironically, the name on the tombstone is Wittich. So, yeah, that does sound like witch. <laughs> so the stories just continued with the legend. Supposedly, this was where a child was born of the witch and the devil, and or the devil's child was buried here. Or the mother of the devil's child is buried here. It, whatever whatever flavor you'd like that when you tell the yes. story. <laughs> the tree and this tombstone were, of course, very nearby the old evangelical Emmanuel Church, which, like I said, is no longer there. But apparently when it was there, it covered a staircase that led down, 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 down. to hell. The stairs are apparently hidden now by overgrowth if you dare go looking for them, which... I don't suggest you do. I don't suggest you go visit the cemetery. It is private property. But back to the church. A murder is said to have happened in a barn that once stood on the land of the cemetery. A stable hand stabbed the mayor right there on the land. The mayor? Yep. The stable hand stabbed the mayor. Okay. Not a mayor like a horse. (laughs) The mayor of the town. This barn was converted into the infamous church. Oh. The church essentially held many dark magic or black masses, as they called them. The church was gutted by a fire and stood without a roof for a very long time. And regardless the strength of the storm that moved through Stoll, it never got any rain. And no matter how hard you threw a bottle against the church's walls, the bottles would never break it just bounce off okay to set this story right stole kansas is small (laughs) so small in fact that there has never been a mayor (laughs) maybe it was a barn that became a church maybe that's true i don't know but like here's the thing though the people that lived in stole that are like from stole had never heard any of these stories before that initial article was written at at Kansas University in Lawrence. (laughs) It actually angered a lot of the residents. Stoll is an itty-bitty country town. Like, according to Wikipedia, in 1912, there were 31 people living there. (laughs) 31. It's an old cemetery that once had an old church in it. But now hosts the devil evil (laughs) spirits seances the devil's child or the child's mother's dead whatever and a gallows tree oh and then there's this like hole in the fence like the fence is like bent in at this weird place the fence that's around the the cemetery yes and people have named this the zombie exit (laughs) (laughs) and there's been a photo of a werewolf boy peeking out from behind a tree in the cemetery. There's so many stories. In 1993 or 1995, depending on the story you hear, apparently this is from Time magazine, the story claimed that Pope John Paul II allegedly ordered his private plane to fly around the whole eastern side of Kansas on his way to Colorado because he didn't want to fly over, quote, 
unholy ground. <laughs> I've, I've heard of that. That one I have heard. Many people have, but I could not find an article that stated this at all. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I remember that as a kid being told that the Pope won't even fly over Kansas <laughs> because we have the seventh gateway to hell. <laughs> over the years, of course, with all these legends, an overwhelming amount of people show up to Stoll Cemetery especially on Halloween and the spring equinox. There's a lot of vandalism. It's really sad. Oh, you know, we've talked about it, but like, obviously these legends are silly and we're laughing at them. And I don't know if the KU students made the whole thing up or if they really had heard legends, but that gets to a point that when you believe in something so much, and people are going there and doing seances and they're going there. They're bringing this negative energy. Ouija boards, I'm sure. Exactly. Yeah, right. What are you dredging up? Like there's something is going to happen when you're messing with this stuff. Like, is it the scary stories and the fear from these stories that makes people believe? For example, in 2018, famous pop star Ariana Grande was in Kansas City. And she's really into spooky paranormal stuff. Anyway, she gave an interview to Complex Magazine in 2018. And you know, it's about her tour and her clothing and makeup, workout routine, blah, blah, blah. But somehow, the paranormal topic snuck its way into the conversation. And she shared her story about visiting Stoll Cemetery. Oh, no. She told the magazine that as they drove and got closer to the cemetery, she started to feel sick. She had this overwhelming feeling of negativity. Then as they pulled up, the whole car apparently started to smell like sulfur. Uh-oh. And she stated that randomly there was a fly buzzing around the car. This was all enough for her that she requested to leave. Before she left, she rolled down her window and apologized to the spirits, saying that she didn't mean any harm and she was sorry for bothering them. She then took a photo. She claims there are three very distinct faces in the picture, and she claims that they are faces of demons. Oh. The next day, she tried to send the photo to her manager to share the details of her excursion, but the message wouldn't send, and the words, quote, this file can't be sent. It's 666 megabytes, unquote, <gasps> flashed oh. on her screen. Oh, that's clever. <laughs> that's spooky. That's not clever. That's spooky, actually. Well, it's clever if it was made up. I don't think it was, though. I think and that's the thing is like, I think that was in 2018. These legends have been being t- been told now hundreds of years. Well, at least in, since KU started their article in 74. So, again, how many people have gone there looking for the devil? Like, I do believe that she caught something in her on her phone. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it was 666. I don't think any of that is a coincidence at this point. I think there probably might be something there now after all of these. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, all that's bringing a force of some sort there. Yeah. For those poor people that live there. Oh, for goodness sake. Yeah. Okay. So 
I know I could be done with ghost stories and legends, but I have one more from Kansas that I had to share. Now, I looked, you know, for legends of Kansas, legends of Kansas, ghost stories of Kansas. I wanted to share something. And this story came up everywhere. And I, I had never heard it before. I was actually really surprised, especially growing up in Kansas. This is a legend from Hutchison, Kansas. Hamburger Hill in Hutchison, Kansas, to be exact. In the Sand Hills, north of Hutchinson, is the rumored haunting of the Hamburger Man. He is this half-ghost, half-monster-like being that attacks his victims, in most stories with a hook, takes them to his shack hidden in the Sand Hills State Park, and then, yes, you guessed it, grinds his victims into hamburger oh, meat. Oh. <laughs> They say if you are hiking the state park, do not wander too far off the path or Hamburger Man will get you. (laughs) Well, that's one way to keep people on the trails. (laughs) I mean, you don't want to become a Big Mac, do you? (laughs) This story has been around since at least the 1950s. Mom, I am not joking. This has been told since the 1950s. This is not a joke. It was everywhere when I searched for Legends of Kansas, and I was like, the heck? (laughs) Hamburger Man? I'm just picturing Ronald McDonald. The (laughs) Hamburglar, I know. He said to be, he is said, though, to be a deformed monster creature. He'll get you with either his hook or a long, large, curved knife, and he makes you into a hamburger. (laughs) So stay on the trails okay i'm done (laughs) those were great (laughs) oh i love legends though you know it's just like but i'd like to find out how they started i know and that's why before that ku article there's nothing written down anywhere about it but they claimed in that article that they had heard the stories from their parents and their grandparents and legends don't just I mean, I guess they could just be told one day and then spread, but I don't know. You and I both heard the same stories about how the rain never gets in the church, doesn't didn't have a roof. It was a portal to hell. The devil would show up there and right. the Pope wouldn't even fly over it. <laughs> yep. Those are just stories that we've just heard forever about the cemetery. I know. It had to start somewhere, so I'm very curious as to where, but all signs pointed to Lawrence and the KU students. In 74. Mm-hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. So, cheers to episode 107. Cheers to Kansas. Good old Kansas. You can see pictures on our website and our social media. Send us your requests if you have a hometown murder or a hometown haunt that you want us to cover. You can message us those on our website, killerhangoverpodcast.com, or you can email killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. Yep. And I really appreciated Mitzi talking to me about this because I would never have known about it. No, and I like to cover cases like that too, unknown ones and... That aren't on every podcast. Right. Yeah. No, I like hearing new stories and sharing new victims' stories. That's important. Did I mention I am so low on sleep? 
What else is there that I need to tell them? Oh, Patreon. You can join us on Patreon. The link is in the description of this episode. It's just the cost of one gallon of gas, guys. <laughs> we used to say a cup of coffee, but now it's a gallon of gas. <laughs> and by oh. the time this episode comes out, I don't know. But hey, it gets you some fun little, little snippets of us. Yeah, I mean... We're putting out extra episodes here and there, and you get episodes released early, and just the cost of one gallon of gas, that's all. (laughs) So join us on Patreon, and um, heck, I might not even do the gas, and I might use it to buy me some caffeine. And that made no sense, so it is time to go to bed. (laughs) It's time to go to bed. Oh, okay, sweetheart. Next week, we'll be covering stories from North Carolina. I will be doing the true crime. Mom will be doing the paranormal and the beverage. And the beverage. I'll try to save it for the actual podcast. (laughs) Yes. Sorry, guys. (laughs) This was fun. Cheers, Mama. Cheers. I love you, kid.